You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 105 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you this week, Al? I'm in the middle of the school holidays, Valerie, so I think that's all that needs to be said at this point. Yes, so So I'm juggling, 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 juggling. So what percentage of your usual workload do you think you actually, your usual writing workload, do you usually get done during the school holidays, would you say? Uh, well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, yeah, well, at the moment I'm not actually actively writing a manuscript or anything, so which is a good thing. Mm. Um, but last school holidays, I that's I pretty much focused on that. That was all I could do at that point. But this school holidays, I'm not actively writing anything. So as far as the ma- fiction side of things goes, so I, I, you know, I probably end up doing maybe half, approximately okay, half what, of what I would normally do. That's not as bad as I thought. I well, thought it'd be like it's because 10%. I'm no, no, no. Because I, you know, I'm quite used to. I, I've spent years and years and years working around children, so yeah. I've got you know systems in place. I, I just don't take as much on over that period, and and I just I, I do all my regular things that I normally do without adding too much else to it. Mm. So yeah, so I get about fifty percent done, and I and I sort of you know I, I know when I can do things and when I can't, and I at this I mean t- trying to write a novel in the last school holidays was probably one of the most insane things I've ever done. So I probably wouldn't be doing that again ever. But, you know, anyway, I'm but here. You did Look it. at me. We have a quiet moment and I am here podcasting. So, therefore, you know, things are getting better. They are getting older, a bit more sensible, manageable. Yeah, well yeah. done. Yeah, finally, light yes. at the end of the tunnel. And yes. you, what are you doing? I am off to the Philippines. Oh, Yes, I am busy packing and just getting organised, working out what electrical outlet adapter that I need and, um, yeah, off to the Philippines to do a couple of training sessions and a keynote at a conference in Cebu, which is C-E-B-U. And I've never been to the Philippines before, so that should be really interesting. We'll look forward to hearing all about your trip. I'm going to the Lego exhibition in Sydney. That's as far as I'm going. (laughs) Whatever. I'm not jealous at all. All right. We just want to give a shout-out to Chrissy LB. Chrissy has left us a uh, five-star rating on iTunes and has said, you reignited my love of reading and writing. Wow. Oh, oh that's big. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So Chrissy has said, my husband is a serial podcast listener and put me on to you. Before I started listening, I was skeptical. There are so many podcasts I get excited about and then I'm let down for various reasons. But I was surprised and delighted by Valerie and Allison's weekly podcast. The content is entertaining, interesting, educational, and you really get an insight 
insight into reading and writing. I've now rediscovered bookshops because of Valerie and Alison. Plus, I have also recently completed an Australian Writer Centre online course. Keep up the great work. You're both so inspiring. Oh, wow. See, we just like to read these things out because they just make us smile. Yeah, they just make (laughs) us happy. It's just like, yes, we can keep doing this. People like us. I feel like Sally Field. You like us. You like us. (laughs) Thank you so much, Chrissy LB. That's, you know, it means more to us than you know. You've really made our day. It really does. Thank you. And to your husband for putting putting you on to us. And to your husband. So if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings and helps put us in the what's hot section so that other people can find us as well. But let's move on to the world of uh, writing and publishing and blogging this week, shall we, Al? Let's do that, Valerie. I'm looking forward to it. What have you got for us? I have an interesting link from a website or a blog called Screencraft, which is about screenwriting and the business of Hollywood. And it's called Five Ways Screenwriters Can Get Into the Minds of Their Characters. Now, one of the things that they refer to is method screenwriting, which is like a, you know, a reference to method acting. And there are method actors like Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino who go to great lengths to become the characters they represent. Like they try to change their bodies to represent, you know, Batman or whoever. Mm. They learn the language that the character speaks. They, Some of them, you know, if they're meant to play somebody who's in jail, wasting away in prison, they'll go and live in solitude for a while. Um, they, walk in the dark, they walk through the dark streets to feel what it's like to be a killer. So there's method acting. But so method screenwriting is kind of a similar um, a similar thing but it's where screenwriters kind of go do those things so that put themselves in those situations of their characters so they can see what it's really like mm. um, you know uh, it's 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 an interesting thing because it applies not only to screenwriting but to fiction writing generally. Mm. So the author of this post was saying that when he was developing his script, which is called One Shot, which was picked up by Lionsgate, and it's about – this is fascinating. This is about uh, – the, the, the script is about a Navy SEAL sniper – He wanted to get into the mindset of what it would be like to be a Navy SEAL or to be treated like a Navy SEAL. So all he did was purchased a simple set of Navy shirts that had the SEAL emblem on it. And he didn't go around pretending he was a Navy SEAL or anything. He just wore the shirt at the gym while he was working out. So, um, Mm. and he said that throughout those workouts, he could feel the eyes on him. And he was saying, the public respects men who serve, and I surely could feel that respect with nods, eye contact, etc. I accompanied that feeling with my imagination of taking on that role and feeling as if I was the character I was writing. Those moments alone helped me to write a few scenes where the SEAL sniper was walking through a military base as soldiers looked on. And those moments provided the doorway that I needed into that character. So I'm curious to know, Al, Mm -hmm. for any of your fictional books, have you – not gone to like that extent perhaps, but have you tried to feel what it's like to be a character or, you know, and and really, you know, try and embody the character? I'm not just talking about going to a place to see what it looks like or whatever. I'm, I'm meaning actually embodying the character like this guy has done. 
I no, I don't think I've ever tried to embody a character. Um, but what I what I try very hard to do, and what I think most children's authors do, is try very hard to reach back into the feelings mm. of being that age. Yes. Whether as a reader or as a character, it's about finding the. I don't know, it's very hard to explain, but it's it's about finding that feeling of what it feels like to be a, you know, 14-year-old, an uncertain, mm. you know, and not having, not bringing the, you know, you don't have that wealth of knowledge that you have. It, it, it's, it's more trying to find that that sense of, of, of the age group, I think, from my perspective. Um, I do a lot of research in the sense of reading. Um, like I found myself, you know, reading with the map makers, reading a lot of stuff about, you know, explorers and, and um, just trying to get a sense of, of the, what it would, you know, that, that vastness, try, trying to capture the vastness of being out in the middle of nowhere where you have no idea where you are mm. and you don't know if you're actually going to come across another um, landing place before you run out of food, run out of water, you know, get knocked over in a storm, whatever. Um, so I guess trying to capture that atmosphere um, is the other thing that I really concentrated on and that that notion of um, what it was like to to be that. So I, I did read a lot of nonfiction of, um, of boy, you know, about, you know, young sailors and young Nelson mm. and that sort of stuff to get that sense of what it feels like to be, um, you know, the smallest person on the boat as well. Is that? Yes. So, um I think it's important um, if you're going to write, you know, very far outside your comfort zone to try and people know when you're just making it up entirely. Yes. There has to be, you've got to ground your your fiction of any level in in those touchstones, those reality touchstones that people can feel. So even if you're in an entire fantasy world, your character's reaction to that fantasy world has to feel real, has to feel like something that they would feel or, um, yeah, so I I guess it's that. Maybe. Yeah, I think, and also one of the exercises that we suggest, because as you say, you're trying to put your mind into what it would be like to have those feelings of a 14-year-old, but like when you're writing picture books for, you know, four-year-olds or five-year-olds, one mm. of the exercises that, fun exercises, just to try it, that we suggest is to get on the ground and actually be that level and mm. see what it's like to look up at at things and to be at the same level as the dog, mm. you know, yeah, and just yeah. walk around on your haunches I suppose walk yeah. around at a low level just to see what it's like to be a four-year-old and it's a, it's a very different perspective anyway let's move on to mm. um the next thing I've got here which mm-hmm. is uh it's from mental floss and it's interesting because it's four reasons to write by hand mm. rather than type <coughs> now do you ever do you write by no, hand much no you know I don't write yeah. by hand I can't read my handwriting <laughs> But, you know, the minute you say, you know, write by hand, my hand starts to hurt, the whole idea of it. Um, I know lots of people that do. And remember we spoke to way back in the day, like episode four or something, 100 episodes ago, we spoke to um, a debut novelist by the name of Jack Ellis who had written his entire novel by hand. Oh, yeah. And he and I had quite the conversation about that because I just couldn't get – it's too slow for me. I just, yes. And I, I think that's one of the benefits of it in some ways, in that it slows it slows your process down a little bit. Maybe allows you to kind of think a bit more clearly about what you're doing. Um, but I mm. like to keep up with my brain. And but do you so ever therefore- write like you know when you're like out out away from your computer and you write to do lists? Do you do to do lists by hand or anything? Like uh, that? I'll do to do lists by hand, and mm. then I'm the only one that can read them. You know, and I write shop. I mean, you know, my husband makes me type shopping lists. 
because he can't read them. <laughs> so, no, I should have been a doctor. I definitely yes. had the handwriting for it. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I don't do a lot of handwriting anymore. And I, and I do honestly think part of it too is that I type very fast and I yes. I can keep up with my head a yes. bit quicker if I actually – or better if I actually – type however people who do write by hand you know speak very highly of it what does the what does the post have to say what are the four reasons that they give us well they're all backed by um scientific studies but uh it says a it activates your brain because mm. you know which is probably a bit more relevant when you're younger and you're a child yeah 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 so yeah, maybe yeah. not so much applies to adults it improves your spelling which i think oh. is interesting because mm. I, I sometimes am confounded when really intelligent people can't spell properly but mm. anyway um mm. that's a whole other conversation oh that's a whole other conversation Val. yep this is what i think is interesting it helps you remember and mm. i think there is some truth in that because yep. i do find that when i write things down by hand as opposed to type it into my iphone yeah. I am more likely to remember it. Yes, that's very true. So, yeah, and here's an interesting one, especially when you were saying that typing, you, you can type as fast as your brain thinks. It says here that it helps you think faster. Really? Yes, and that children consistently did better writing with a pen when they wrote essays and, you know, as opposed to on a keyboard. But you know what I think that is? I just think it's the fact that they're talking about a 2009 study of elementary and middle school kids. Those kids just can't type properly. Yes, yet. all right. Don't well, they make, these days they can, can't they? No, but they're not doing, you know, like I don't know how fast you type, Val, but I'm, you know, I'm on fire. I learned to touch type. So I mm. I can type very, very, very fast. I, have, I haven't done a testing for some time, so I couldn't <laughs> tell you the actual thing. But um, I'm definitely typing, you know, five or six times faster than I could write anything. And I think that that's all it is. Like my guys, um, my two boys, they type, but they type with two fingers and it takes them an hour. So, yeah, you right. know, yeah, no. I'm I'm not sorry. I'm I'm So one of your kids is into writing and reading and stuff. Does he type does he write by hand? Uh if he's writing stories he writes by hand because he can write mm. faster than he can type. Mm-mm, right. So it's as simple as that. They both like to write. Um, they both like to draw comics and things like that as well. But they so all that's done by hand. They do all that stuff by hand. Um when he writes, it's like sometimes he'll sit down and, you know, type, but he finds it frustrating because he can't type as fast as he can write. So he, it's the same thing. He can't keep up with his brain if he's sure. typing, whereas he can if he's writing. So I, I just think you go with whatever tool is going to allow you to um, – you just want to – like basically for me, if I'm typing, you know, this thing about it helps you remember, I find that really um, – it, probably true with handwriting because mm. when I type words, if I do 2,000 words, for example, in a, an, on a new story – um, I often can't remember what I wrote at all. Yes. I get to the end of it and I cannot remember a word. It's just sort of – it's like you tap into some other section of your brain and there's just this direct line to your fingers and it bypasses every single thing that, you know, every sort of memory bank on the way through. Mm. Yeah, I'm fascinated by what I write sometimes. I so, think, wow, where'd that come from? I think you hit the nail on the head. In the, oh, You've obviously found your thing, which is definitely oh, yeah. typing. Yeah, but yeah. if you're unsure, try mm. them both and yeah. see which one works for you. Definitely. Yeah. So let's move on to our giveaway this week. This is really awesome. Awesome. Yes, this is okay. awesome. This is our giveaway this week. And if you want a chance to win this book, go to writerscenter.com.au slash win mm. and you have the opportunity uh, to enter before the 25th of April and it is Night of the Seven Kingdoms by George R.R. R. Martin. Ooh. Yes. So... 
This is very exciting, especially for Game of Thrones fans. Taking place nearly a century before the events of Game of Thrones, Night of the Seven Kingdoms compiles the first three official prequel novellas to George R.R. Martin's ongoing work, A Song of Ice and Fire. So there you go. I'm sure that this is going to be a very popular giveaway. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Build Your Author Platform, will give you a step-by-step blueprint on the exact steps you need to take to ensure that you build your profile and, of course, ultimately sell more books. Created by author Alison Tate, The course covers what you must have on your website, how to use social media effectively, what you need to do to get more readers, how to take your platform offline and into the real world, like speaking at festivals and book clubs, and how to create an engaged community that will help you to spread the word about your book. And you'll discover why it's so important to do this even before you've finished writing your novel. So get started now before it's too late. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash platform. All right, let's move on to our word of the week this week, shall we? Are you ready? Are you ready? Honestly, I'm on the edge of my seat. You've probably heard of this one, and I don't know whether you'd use it much, but I'm sure you've heard of it. Chimera, C-H-I-M-E-R-A, C-H-I-M-E-R-A. Is that how you say it? How else do you say it? I don't know. I would have said Chimera. (laughs) (laughs) I've only ever – do you know what? No one's ever – I've only ever seen it written down. I've never actually heard anybody say that word. The the first place I actually heard it was – not first place, but um, first place where it registered in my brain uh, was Mission Impossible 2 because the virus (laughs) in Mission Impossible 2 that Tom Cruise was trying to save the world or save the whole of Sydney because it's set in Sydney, right, was called Chimera. It was the Chimera virus. I had no There you go. You see, Val, you teach me something new every <laughs> That's fascinating. So, I've never said it and I've never actually heard it said. So that's that's really interesting. There you go, Chimera. So the original word for, of Chimera is a monster from Greek mythology that breathes fire and has a lion's head, a goat's body and a snake's tail. However... That's not what I'm referring to. In everyday language, when you're talking about, when you say, oh, that's just, that's a chimera, that's basically something that, um, uh, an unrealizable dream, Mm. you know, so something that exists only in your imagination, but it's not possible in reality. Like, you know, um, I could walk on water. (laughs) Well, not quite, but it's, it's, it's really an (laughs) unrealizable dream. Delusions of grandeur. Exactly. Chimera. So I'm going to try and use that this week. Right, please do. And yes. maybe if everybody says it out loud more often, we'll all know how to actually say it. That'd be good. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks for that, Val. It's funny because I um, talked to a lady who was going to Singapore on holidays and she said that she was going to Orchid Road. And I said, what? And she said, Orchid Road, the famous shopping road. I said, that's Orchard Road. She said, no, it's Orchid Road. I said, no, it's Orchard Road. Like I worked there for three years. I know it's Orchard Road. And, she, and I said, and she said, yeah, no, it's Orchid. It's spelled O-R-C-H-A-R-D, Orchid Road. And I went, that's Orchard. 
You can see why my people might get confused there because the whole orchid thing is Singapore's thing, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, but so that's you a know. Other thing. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, tell us who is our writer in residence this week. Ah, well, this week we are talking to the delightful Kate Nunn. Now, Kate used to have the best job in the world, and that's one of them, in that she was the editor of. Um, uh, the the <laughs> yes, she was the editor. Wine of... magazine, yes. <laughs> lots and lots of wine involved, <laughs> and we actually talk about that. Um, and she, so she's a journalist, and she's um, in the last couple of years switched across to writing fiction. And her first mm. uh, novel is out this week. And Kate and I talked about you know the change, making that change from from nonfiction to fiction, and um, how you know what a seller looks like these days. And uh, we talked, yeah, and wine. We discussed wine quite a lot, actually. Now that I think about it. Um, so here's Kate. Kate Nunn is a freelance book, magazine and web editor and the former editor of Gourmet Traveller Wine magazine, which may possibly be the best job in the world. She writes on travel, health, well-being, parenting and lifestyle topics and has been shortlisted for local and international short story awards. Her first novel, Roses Vintage, is out now. Welcome to the program, Kate. Thank you, Alison. Now tell me, was being the former editor of Gourmet Traveller Wine magazine the best job in the world? It was pretty good, mm. yes. I was I was there as the deputy editor and then the editor, I guess, all up for about seven or eight years. Mm. Um, and I did get to do some amazing things and taste some amazing wine and eat some incredible food that went with it and just meet some wonderful people in the industry as well. So, yes. Um, but uh, uh, I think after that, my liver just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have an extensive cellar of your own or have um, you drunk it all? I did have. We've, we've managed to drink our way through it. It's actually, my husband thought it was my dowry that I came with this wine cellar. <laughs> He was very happy. How fantastic. um, Yes. (laughs) All right. So you've actually been a freelance writer for many years, uh, editor, writer, etc., and you've worked in different aspects of the publishing industry. So when did you actually start writing fiction? Um, I think I'd always written little bits, and I'd jotted down story ideas that I'd had, or um, I think when I was a teenager, I wrote terrible poetry and and stories, um, but I always thought it was something that other people did. I never quite had the confidence that I would ever one day be a writer. That was a secret dream that I never admitted to myself and certainly not to anybody else. Um, but um, about three years ago, I started by writing a couple of short stories and I really liked the way I felt at the end of writing them and, and how satisfying it was. Um, and then I had the kind of perfect storm where I had a gap between freelance assignments of about six weeks. Um, my youngest daughter was in daycare three days a week and I wasn't about to pull her out of that. Um, and, uh, and it was the middle of winter and I just thought, you know what, this, you, you need to do this, Kate. I'd also read a couple of books and thought, well, if they can get published, you know, you can do better than that. Little did I know just how difficult it is. Um, and another fr- a friend of mine had got a publishing contract and I thought, well, <laughs> if she can do it, why can't I? Um, and so I made myself sit down and start writing. Um, and, and, and was that Rose's Vintage that you yes, did that turn it out was, to be it Rose's was, Vintage? Although, yes. um, it started off with a different title and a different nationality protagonist, but it's what it evolved into. Yes. Okay. And of course, Rose's Vintage is set in a vineyard. Oh my goodness, what a surprise. <laughs> is this part of the whole writing what you know thing or did it stem from something else? Like why, why the vineyard? Oh, absolutely. It was writing what you know. Um, I'd learned so much about um, 
wine and, and wine making, although there's still a lot I don't know, um, in the course of my job on Gourmet Traveller Wine. Um, and I thought, well, why not? It's a beautiful setting. Um, wine is a very sexy and sensual product. Um, and there's this great sense of, sense of community that I really wanted to try and achieve in the book. I mean, these, sort of, these things evolved slowly. I didn't know it all to start with. It was just as I was writing. In fact, the, the initial inspiration for the book came when I was sitting in Bondi on a really grey, dreary day, and Bondi was not looking very nice at all. It was pretty tatty. And I thought, what would, you, what would it be like if you were an English woman and you showed up here and it was nothing like you expected? What would happen to you? And, and that's where the story sort of started. Mm. So what was the road to publication for it then? Like you, you said you sat down a few years ago and started sort of writing it. How, how long did it take you to write to a draft that you were happy with, and then what happened after that? Um, it took about a year because I had other, other freelance projects come in in the meantime, and I was always desperate to find time to write. And I used to write um, way into the night sometimes, if I'm not a night owl. I would take my laptop to my daughter's soccer games and write sitting in the car. I would write while she did swimming training. Any time I could squeeze in an extra sort of spare hour or so, I'd, I'd write because um, I just wanted to get the thing done. Mm-hmm. Um, so after about a year, I had it. What I thought was a reasonable draft, little did I know, <laughs> that it was still very rough. Um, and I started querying publishers and agents. And in the meantime, I'd sort of got a list of, I'd read other books and thought, oh, well, that's so-and-so's agent, I might like to approach them. And so I got a list together, and I started querying a few. And I had a few requests for the full manuscript, uh, but I also had my fair share of rejections. Um, but one day, out of the blue, um, one of the agents I had sent it to rang me and said, Right, I'd love, I like what I've seen so far. Can you send me the rest and give me an exclusive for a month and then we'll talk? Um, and we did. Um, and um, she gave me, I think, about 45 minutes worth of notes um, over the phone saying, do this, change that, change that. And so I was like, yep, okay, go away and do it. And that took another few months. Um, and I came back with a new draft and then she started sending it out. Um, and then there were a few publishers who liked it but said it was a bit close to other authors in their stable. Um, it, it just took a few months. And then one day she happened to be having a chat with um, Sean Rickmans, the publisher at uh, Black Ink, who had said they were starting up a new uh, women's fiction imprint. Um, and she thought, well, this is the perfect book for her. And, and apparently it was. So that was great news. So it's like really a little bit of a dream run in many ways, you know, from many of the stories that we've heard in the sense it's the first novel you've ever attempted um, yep. you got an agent, you got a publisher, and here we are with it out on the shelves. Do you kind of have to pinch yourself a little bit sometimes? Yes, a little bit, although it's been almost a three-year process, so mm. it hasn't happened overnight. And no, nothing the book in publishing has been, happens overnight. No. Mm. Um, the book's been through more drafts than I can care to count, right. um, and it's changed quite a bit since it started, so I really feel like I did my apprenticeship on this yes. book. I, I knew how to write. I, was, I started thinking, well, I've written professionally. I know how to write grammatically and well, but what I didn't know was how to tell a story. Um, and it was in the course of writing the book that I learned that, getting feedback from a number of different publishers um, and people in the industry. Doing, I did a couple of masterclasses, which were really useful, um, and I read a couple of really good books on writing and thought, right, well, now I know what I need to go back and do to make so it better. So when you got those first 45 minutes worth of notes over the phone, when you put the phone down, did you kind of cry or do you think that all your years of being a freelance writer and taking that sort of feedback made you yeah. made you a little bit more 
Um, it, I was I was completely receptive to it. I was delighted that she was so keen on it. Okay. Um, so the fact that I had to do some extra work on it. I mean, after a while, after kind of draft number eight, I think I think it was. I, I was like, oh God, do I have to keep doing it? Mm. Because there was one publisher who kept asking to see it and see it back again um, that I didn't eventually end up signing with. But all of which helped make the book better. Um, but it was quite a process. I think the hardest thing for me was when um, I had to cut the first three chapters eventually, and I was like, but those are the first words I ever wrote. And my agent ah. said, well, sometimes you just have to write your way into the story. Yes. Um, and, of course, now I can see that it's all the better for it. And what I have really learned is that it's such a collaborative process yeah. uh, that you really need um, an objective look at it from somebody else who knows what they're doing to kind of point out where it's, wor- where it's not working and where it could be better. Okay. And who is your agent? Who was it that actually eventually took it up? Uh, Margaret Connolly. Oh, excellent. All right, so now it's quite a romantic story. I've read the I've read the book, and um, it's a it's a lovely read. I really enjoyed it. Um, so there's a lot of romance in the story. Did you actually set out to write a romantic novel? Is that the kind of thing that you like? Did you think I'm going to write something that's got a happy ending, or what? what how did that come about? Um, definitely um, that had a happy ending. Um, I thought about the books I had really loved when I was a bit younger. I'd, I'd read Jilly Cooper Inside Out and Back to Front so many times and found it a real comfort. Mm. Um, I'd also read, um, when I was uh, in my teens, um, a series of books by H.E. Bates, uh, The Darling Buds of May and all of those. And I loved that feeling of everything just being so jolly and nice and, <laughs> and it's just a beautiful world to be in. And I wanted, I realized as I was writing that I wanted to create that kind of world um, in, in the book. Um, and look, a, a love story seemed to be quite an obvious thing to start with for a first book. Mm. Okay. So, and did you go, did you sort of do any, any work in the sort of how to write a romance novel area or did you just allow the story to kind of inform that romance as it came through? I think I just went where the story went. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it, I knew where it had to end, but it was the kind of the journey in between that I had to figure out as I was going along. I did. I'd, I'd sort of do this. I was training for a marathon at the time, which was extremely helpful because mm. I knew that I just had. I didn't think too far ahead. I just had to do what I had to do that day or that week. Yeah. Um, and so I'd go out for a really long run. I don't often think about what think about the plot and what had to happen and what might happen on my long runs. And by the time I got home and had a shower, I'd be like, right, ready to sit down and write. Um, and I would get up very stiff-legged several hours later. <laughs> um, but it just, um, that became a bit of a process in itself. But I hadn't, I, um, when I was growing up, I read heaps and heaps of Mills and Boone and stuff like that. I'm sure my mother was horrified. Mm. Um, so, I, and I'd read an awful lot of what people call chick lit. So I think I'd kind of absorbed mm. the, what was required from that mm. kind of book. Mm. Okay. Now, we talked before, you've got a professional background as a writer, which, you know, as you say, gives you that confidence that you know how to put a sentence together. What sort of of other lessons do you think from freelance writing did you take into the process of finishing, like writing and finishing the novel and getting it published? Like, how do you think your background as a freelance writer and editor informed your fiction writing? Um, I I think in quite a few ways it was helpful. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't precious about my work or my words. I Mm. knew that I was just beginning and it was a start. Um, and so I welcomed all the help and advice I got. Um, I didn't always take a hundred percent on board, but I was, I took a lot of it on board. Um, I, um, I knew how to set, set myself a deadline. Um, Mm. I was, I'm used to working to deadlines and, um, I'm quite goal oriented. 
So I'd set myself a deadline of, say, 1,000 words a day, or I'd, I'd do this sort of super Saturday thing where on a Saturday I'd lock myself away from the family and just write for an hour. And I was, it's amazing what you can get done when you really concentrate um, mm. on that time. Mm. Um, so, uh, and I think it just gained its own momentum. I became keener and keener to sit down with it and to, to keep the story going. I'd also written, I hadn't completely planned it out, but at times I'd sort of plan out a few chapters ahead. Right. Uh, and so on the days that I didn't really feel like it, I'd just sit down and go, okay, well, you've got to write this scene. This is what's got to happen. Sit down and write it. And before I knew it, I was quite absorbed in it. So that was good. So while you're doing this, like you've got your family and you're still doing your freelance writing and editing and things like that, did you did you ever find it... Um, like, did you ever get to the end of the day and think, oh, I've, I've written 3,000 words today, I really can't face doing fiction? Or did it just feel like a break for you, um, you know, it, like it a nice felt change? Like a, a little bit of a break, it's, it, um, but sometimes I didn't and I just didn't. I didn't put myself under too much pressure. Mm. I just kind of did it when I wanted. Um, there were mostly the times when I couldn't get to it uh, and so by the time I had some time to do it, I was sort of champing at the bit, going, right, mm. I really want to write and I've been thinking about the scene and let's get it down. So that was actually quite useful in some ways rather than having, you know, an enormous amount of time and, and fiddling around and not getting anything done. What about with the editing process? Because I know from my perspective that, um, you know, I'm completely used to having my freelance writing edited, know exactly how to go about, you know, editing 3,000, you know, two, 3,000 words, 1,000 words, whatever. Yeah. Faced with the edit of, you know, seventy to 80,000 words, knowing that changes that you make at the start of the book affect every single thing that happens throughout the book, did you find that structural edit process um, daunting at all, or, or did you? How did you approach it? Did you break it down? Like, what did you? What did you do there? Um, it was useful with the the sort of the final structural edit from my editor because she just gave me a list of points and I just methodically went through and addressed everyone. Mm. Um, but there were some very long days when I just wanted to spend the whole day on it because I needed to keep it all in my head. Mm. Um, otherwise, you do end up with discrepancies, and I still did, and that's why you have an editor and then a copy, you know, a, mm. a copy editor. Yeah. Um, so yes, and you're absolutely right. You make one change, and then it affects everything else. So there were some twelve-hour days where you know I just needed to focus on that, um, which is quite hard work. As quite someone, exhausting. as someone who does work as an editor and has worked as an editor, did you edit books as part of your? I have edited books. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. You, you would have understood the process from that side, yes? Yes, yes, yes. I did completely, um, although it was a lot more involved than I had realised and um, very detail-oriented. Um, <laughs> yes, it's yes. great fun. And I thought, I thought, you know, yes, I'm used to being my non-fiction being edited, but I'm not used to it being pulled apart and, and really, really forensically examined, which was the case with this, which, I mean, it was a fantastic experience. So let's talk about, you know, finding your kind of fiction voice because that's another thing. Like when you're used, you know, you, when you're writing features and you're used to that sort of factual writing and you're putting it within the within the environment of a publication that has its own particular voice and, yeah. and readership, et cetera, that's one uh, very particular skill set. When it comes to actually writing fiction and discovering your own voice and working, you, you know, working through the way that you actually go things about things, did did that take time? Like in the sense that, you know, you've, you've said that this has been through several – several drafts, Rose's Vintage, yeah. was the voice there right from the start or did you find that that's developed as you've gone through? I think it has developed, definitely. Um, I wrote it as if my sister was going to read it. 
Okay. So I wrote it specifically for her and knowing what she likes. So I had this big um, post-it note on my computer saying, make it funny <laughs> <laughs> at all costs. And I tried. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, I, I, I sort of thought, well, that's, I'd like her to enjoy it. So, um, so you gave yourself an with. ideal reader, basically. Yes. Yes. And that's often something that people do say, and I found the same thing myself, is that if you write it for someone specific, you actually end up writing something that is universally enjoyed, but you have an idea in your head of who this person is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hopefully. Hopefully. Technically, yes. (laughs) So what surprised you most about the fiction publishing process? Um, I think I knew from having my uh, original career was in book publishing, so I knew just how long it took. Um, but it was, I guess it was how, how nitty gritty it got. Um, and, and, but still I knew it took a long time, but it does take an awful long time. Um, I think if I'd, I'd known at the start three years ago, how long this was going to take, I, I would still definitely continue, but I would, um, be a bit more patient. I think you have to be incredibly patient. Yeah, um, the good thing was when I'd finished the first book, I started writing a second because I had an idea for the second in the same setting but not a sequel. Um, and that stopped me worrying and, and you, know, wait, you know, literally waiting for the email box to ping or the phone to ring. Um, so I just got, I thought, you know what, I've done all I can on this. Let's start something else and just keep going. Okay. So that, that is a great piece of advice and it's, it's advice that is often um, handed out willy-nilly. Um, yes. But not everybody takes it up because they're so busy, you know, pressing sort of return on the email inbox waiting for the answer, et cetera, that they don't get onto it. So did you, how did you kind of get yourself in the mindset to do that? Um, I, I, I guess I had some time to think. I had a few weeks and just thought and a new character came to me and I knew that it, how she was related to the other characters in the first book. Um, and then I, I just started writing. Fantastic. All right. So given your background, the fact that you've got experience in different aspects of the publishing industry, um, you probably understand that, you know, there's a certain amount of work that needs to be done by the author that to help promote, market the book, etc. Have you taken steps yourself to do that? Definitely. Look, I've been working very closely with the publicist at Mm -hmm. um, Black Ink, and we've divided up the work between us. Um, but I think even before then, I had been reading a lot of um, writing advice on the internet. I'd, I'd been following various writers on Twitter um, and publishers and that kind of thing, just to kind of put myself in that environment. I'd also spent, before I launched my website, because I knew I needed to have some sort of, just a shingle where people could go and, and find out a little bit more about the book if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd looked at other authors' websites and thought, well, what are they doing well? What do, what do I like? What don't I like? And I'm also quite a visual person, having been a magazine editor, so I wanted yes, it to look really clean and fresh and reflect the book, but not be all about um, the you know that first book. No, because uh, so you're sort of setting things. a brand image for yourself in yes. many ways, aren't you? Which is yes. and it's actually terrific. I think your website is is great, and I can very much see your magazine background in it. <laughs> is it so? How long have you had that together? Like, is that something that's evolved over time? Have you tweaked that along the way, or is it just a recent addition that you've put up, ready to go? Here's my shingle. Let's do it. Yeah. It's a recent edition. Yes, okay, I knew terrific. that I would need to get one done before the book comes out, um, but I hadn't had a need for one before then that I saw necessarily. Um, uh, in terms of my professional work, I keep that very separate, and that's on LinkedIn, and that's how most people find me okay. for that. And how did you um, – so in the sense that you were saying you've worked closely with the publicist and you've divided things up and you've done the research, what do you think is the one thing that you thought I really need to do? Was it the website or was it other thing? Was there something else that you felt you needed to – um, to do to help promote the book? 
Um, I think being aware of who the who the book bloggers are in my particular genre has helped. Mm, yes. Um, and just being aware of who they are and, and what they like and how they review books. Um, and so I'd gradually collated a list of, of those um, before I, we started the publicity um, sort of push. Yep. And so I already had a list to go of people I thought that might be interested in the book, Great. both here and in the US and the UK. Great. Okay. So you've really, yeah. Okay. You might want to send that list to me. That'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will do. So, um, uh, so what are you working on now? The, is the second book uh, finished? The second book or is finished working? and it's been accepted by my publisher and it only, Woo-hoo. I think it had one draft. So clearly, hopefully I've learned something in the wow, first book. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, one draft and my, my agent was happy with it. So it went to the publisher. Um, and both of those have also sold in Germany. And I actually just heard yesterday that Roses Vintage has sold in Poland as well. So that's oh, that's exciting. brilliant. So, yeah. well, you know, well done you on your debut novel. <laughs> that's fantastic. Sorry, you, go ahead. Sorry, you were going to. We we were sort of like talking via email before we started this, and and I since we've had that conversation, I have noticed that there is a little bit of a movement in in books set in wineries and vineyards and things like that. It's like a little subgenre coming through that we can see. Is that um, are you have you sort of become aware of that? Is that a relatively new thing? Um, I have. I'm definitely aware of it because I've been looking at other books that are, you know, kind of competing or, or similar. And yes, I mean, writers like Monica McInerney and yeah. Loretta Hill, um, Patricia Stringer, that there is this kind of subgenre of rural romance. And when I first pitched the book, I sent it to my agent, Margaret, and said, look, it's, it's, it's rural romance, but it's not. It's slightly different. And she immediately saw that and got that. Um, so yes, I mean, look, rural romance has been incredibly popular and very successful. Yes. Um, so it's nice to to be, you know, a slight slight part of that as well. Fantastic. All right. So just to finish up today, as we like to do, I am going to ask you for your top three tips for writers. Okay. Um, my first one is um, the obvious advice is always, you know, you can't be a writer unless you're a reader. But when you're a reader, read critically. Um, I love to, to read and get absorbed in a book and let, almost let the words wash over me, but I have to make myself stop. And I read the books by writers I really admire, and I think, well, how do they, how do they create a character? How do they build tension? How do they, what's their dialogue like? How do they start their chapters? How do they finish their chapters? So I almost go through some of the books that I admire really methodically. And go, I look at the chapter beginnings, I look at the chapter endings, and, and I look at what happens at certain points in the novel and why does it happen there and where, just to, as a, you know, a way of understanding how successful books work, really. Mm. So to read critically is my first one. Okay. Um, second one would be um, pay attention notice details, notice, you know, you're out for a walk, how might you describe the scene, um, how people talk, think of the language they use, um, think about all your senses, not just sight, so touch, taste, um, hearing, all of those, to, to be able to use in your book. I kept, a, um, when I first started Roses Vintage, I kept a, just a Word doc, and I put all my notes down on it, and I'd have little ideas for little lines or little bits of dialogue, um, and I eventually was able to work most of them into the book. Um, and, uh, and I keep a notebook by my bed because I invariably wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, yeah, I'll, forget. I'll remember that in the morning, and it, I never do, <laughs> never do. So um, just, yeah, pay attention to what's going on around you, um, because that's really useful information to be able to include. Um, And then my third recommendation, I've got two books to recommend, which I found really helpful. Um, The first one's called Writing the Breakout Novel by Donald Marr. Oh, yes. Um, And the second one, uh, which was recommended to me, um, is called Immediate Fiction by Jeffrey Cleaver. Oh, right. I haven't read that one. 
Okay, I didn't read a lot of books about writing, and I think you, you can, you're in danger of becoming paralyzed and reading too many, um, but I, I, I read two or three, and those two were particularly useful. Okay, well, uh, we will um, get the links and put those links in the show notes um, so that our listeners can, can find those. So um, I'm just making notes here as I speak to you so that I remember to do that, because otherwise I will not. <laughs> um, all right, well, that's... Um, that's all we need today. I think that was an excellent chat. And I would like to ask you, your website address is katenun.com? Yes, and it's K-A-Y-T-E-N-U-N-N. And Rose's Vintage is out now. And, of course, we can now look forward to a second book coming soon to a bookshop near us as well. Yes. Fantastic. All right, Kate, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And um, we hope that Rose's Vintage goes gangbusters and you might need to restock the cellar. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alison. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Al. Always love a bit of conversation about wine and words and stuff like oh, that. Oh, absolutely. And I just think the fact that, you know, they've there's this they've identified this kind of subgenre of rural romance as being, you know, um romance set in vineyards. And you know, you can mm-hmm. see how it lends itself really, can't you? A bit of wine, a bit of men, a bit of song. Lovely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our web pick for the week. This web app, what am I saying? This web app identifies unnecessary words in your writing. It's called Expresso, and we'll put the link in the show notes, but it's a free app that points out style issues in blocks of text. So, yeah. So there's already been quite a number of reviews uh, out there. So, um. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Lifehacker reports that the app is useful for identifying common issues like filler words, use of passive voice, and weak verbs. So you just mm. copy and paste the text that you're working on into the app, or you can write directly into the text field, but I can't imagine why you would do that, and let Expresso analyse your writing. So there you Gosh. go. Okay. Sounds Expresso. good. Expresso. The trouble with um, – you know, trying out all these writing apps is your phone gets really full. Mm, you yes. might need to delete a few. I think so. I'm going to go. There might need to be a cull of the, le- the, the, the um, you know, less useful, least yes. useful. Mm. Yes, exactly. All right. Speaking of useful, we're mm. going on to discussing our working writer's tip of the week. And this question has come in from Madeline and it's a fairly succinct and to the point kind of question, which I like. Thank you very much, Madeline. The question is, what is the difference between a non-fiction author platform and a fiction author platform? And I'm going to give this one to you, Valerie, <laughs> as part of my new regime of Valerie Answers the Question. All right. Well, thank you for the question, Madeline, and thank you for throwing to me, Al. Oh, anytime. Well, the difference between a nonfiction author platform and a fiction author platform, well, one thing that's the same, that it's all about building your profile as an author. So that's mm. definitely the same. And mm. the key is to build your profile as an author. But usually when you are a nonfiction author, 90% of the time you are uh, not you are writing nonfiction in a particular area. Mm. Now that particular area might be um, a hobby area. It might be an area of expertise, like you're a chiropractor and you're writing about back pain. Or it might be um, memoir, like you've gone through a particular, you know, um, thing in life and you're writing about it, or it might be a business book 
or a business area. So usually there is an area of expertise and it's almost kind of easier to build a nonfiction author platform uh, than it is, or, or it's, it, it takes a little bit less time to build a nonfiction author platform than a fiction author platform. Both um, are absolutely possible. The fiction one just takes a little bit more of a gestation period. Mm. Now, a nonfiction author platform is where you showcase your expertise in that particular area, whatever it is that your nonfiction book is about. And you can do that by, you know, very similar to a fiction author platform in that you do it via content marketing, by writing blog posts about that particular area, by sharing useful resources about that particular area, by going on LinkedIn or whatever the social media platform you know, of your choice is and, and talking about certain things in, in that area. So it's, it's a summarize, I guess. I mean, I could go on for 10 hours about mm. this. I could actually go on for exactly eight hours about this because I did this for a full day. Um, <laughs> but to summarize, it's about showcasing your expertise in the particular area in which your nonfiction book is about. Mm. So it's quite clear. Whereas a fiction author platform is a little bit broader because often you write about different things with fiction yeah. and it's about positioning yourself as an author, as a writer, and gaining a community and fans and followers who are interested in you and or your writing because they're not necessarily both the same. So interested in you and or your writing and want to support you, uh, you know, when your book comes out and spread the word about your book, you know, because they hopefully enjoy it. Does that kind of answer the question? Oh, I think you've covered it beautifully, though. <laughs> I don't think I could add a single word. I think it's just perfect. Doesn't she do a good job, people? She should do it more often. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you'd like to reach out to us on social media, where do we find you, Al? Uh, you'll find me at my website, alisontate.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate. You'll find me on Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. Great. You'll find Thank me you. at Valerie Koo on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook. I'll be on Snapchat at the Valerie Koo. And uh, in the next week or so, you might get a couple of pictures here and there from the Philippines. Oh, good. Looking yes. forward to that. Should be fun. All right. What are you up to this coming week, Al? Uh, well, surviving. Oh, the much. school holidays. Yeah, yes. I think I'll just get most of that done, and <laughs> um, and then we'll see. You know what happens. You know, coming into term two, I've got lots and lots of speaking engagements coming up in term two, so that's exciting. Right. I've got some new workshops to put together, and yeah, I'm I'm you know it's all it's all grist to the mill. It's all entertaining. Exciting. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to us, and we look forward to chatting to you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.